The relationship between scientists and politicians has never been an easy one. These days, scientists advise our government on anything from run-of-the-mill policy to cyber warfare to natural disasters to taxation or on the future of our energy needs. But with only 10% of MPs having a scientific background, is this advice always understood? And even when it is, do our politicians always adhere to it? With me to discuss all these issues and more are Catherine Boast, a fourth-year default student in physics from St Peter's College, and Rob Shirley, a third-year physics default student at Lincoln College. Thank you very much for joining me. Catherine, about a year ago, you had a very interesting secondment to Parliament, to the Parliamentary Office of Science and Technology, as you write. Could you explain how you came to do that and what sort of stuff you got up to in Parliament? Yeah, of course. So, um, my research council, my funding body, uh, so the people who fund my... DPhil run, they call them postgraduate research fellowships uh, within POST, Parliamentary Office of Science and Technology. And they advertise these once a year, and once a year they send a graduate student who they are funding to spend three months at POST, working on pretty much whatever POST need them to. And the idea is that it introduces dialogue between POST and between scientists. By talking to post, the scientists then have access to Parliament and to the various ways that um, science can be brought to bear on policy. The idea is that the politicians get the advantage of these post notes, which are these very uh, condensed reports on current scientific policy, and the scientists get a kind of greater understanding of the parliamentary procedures, how politicians might use their research, is that...? Yeah, that's pretty much it. I mean, it's a win-win situation, really. Um, as a graduate student, it's an amazing experience to go and spend three months in Parliament to up sticks and do something completely different, because uh, it is completely different to scientific research. Well, because what was your report on that you were writing? So mine was on digital forensics and crime, uh, which is not something I knew anything about in advance. I don't think I even knew what forensics really meant before I started. Uh, it was the first thing I googled. <laughs> it, it's a very steep learning curve, but also if you don't know about a topic in advance, you're not likely to have very many preconceived ideas, very many biases, uh, which makes for much easier writing when you know that your final report has to be totally unbiased. That's one of the really important things about post and about these post notes. So the post notes are the main way that post communicates with parliamentarians. They have to be totally unbiased. Um, and it's not just unbiased in the sense of presenting both sides of the argument. It's unbiased in the sense that it has to take in and present um, a, a fair representation of the consensus. So it's 90% of people think that um, current policy on digital forensics is a total disaster and 10% think it's great. It's no good just um, spending half the note saying it's great and half the note saying it's terrible. It's important to to present balance in these things. I think there's a copy of your report here on the table in front of us. Could you give us a sense of what sort of documents these post notes are? Um, so they're four pages long. They are meticulously researched and referenced. And they're very policy heavy, uh, very policy focused, because that's what MPs need. It's no good just telling them how to hack a computer. They want to know how that's going to affect 
the decisions that they're going to have to make. So it, it includes a bit of the, the background science of what digital forensics is and um, information on how it works so that politicians really have a genuine understanding of what's going on and what people are talking about when they say digital forensics. Well, even though our <laughs> show is about science and politics rather than digital forensics, you've written my appetite so much. How did you describe digital forensics to the politician readers? Digital forensic science is the process of obtaining, analysing and using digital evidence in investigations or criminal proceedings. Um, so it's essentially how you get information from digital devices. So whether that's getting the GPS positions of a mobile phone for the last week, or whether it's recovering information from a laptop, or decrypting an encrypted hard drive, or downloading data from the cloud. It's sort of, it's all of these things. It, it encompasses any kind of digital evidence um, and how to get hold of it, essentially. The current state of the field and its, I guess, use in ongoing investigations was summarised by you and your colleagues in this four-page report. Yeah, yeah. What would you consider to be the main difficulties that you faced, and I guess scientists in general face, in communicating with Parliament? Well, first up, most parliamentarians are not scientists. So you have to assume a fairly low baseline knowledge for these things. And when you're trying to explain something complicated like encryption to someone who has only ever used a computer from the outside and never tried to code or encrypt or anything, um, there's a lot of work that you have to do to make sure that you're communicating everything they need to know in a way that they're going to be able to understand. But it's also hard to know whether politicians understand science for what it is, whether they really appreciate the fact that, that science is, to all intents and purposes, fact. It's not opinion, it's not just another lobby group. It's the best thing, it's, it's our best attempt at getting things right. And I, I do wonder, I do worry that MPs have scientists talking in one ear and presenting the quote-unquote scientific viewpoint and then lobby groups speaking in the other ear presenting perhaps a somewhat biased view in favour of whatever that lobbying group is in favour of, and whether politicians really understand, know, accept that the science should trump the lobbying. That these are very different kinds of voices. Exactly, and that they're not, they're not equivalent, that science isn't just another, another lobbying group. Rob, perhaps you'd like to come in here. This issue of the scientific consensus against the views of various lobby groups is something that you feel comes up quite a lot. Yeah, I, th I think that, you know, it, it's hard to know exactly what goes into making a policy decision. And when, when science is involved, you know, there are a number of cases where the decisions that government make aren't necessarily, or don't seem from the outside, necessarily based in scientific fact. A particular example... Um, you've written in your notes is about uh, nuclear power in Germany, that a very big government decision was made that seemed very uh, sudden given the scientific advice at the time. The situation in Germany was such that uh, the German government were very pro-nuclear and pro-nuclear power. And then right after Fukushima, their policy did a flip and they basically started going down the road of getting rid of their nuclear power plants. And that was a very split decision. 
And I suppose the, the question to be asked is whether that was really a decision which was based on scientific evidence or whether that was a political decision given that there were elections coming up that year. You know, and it might not be as black and white as that. There are also issues where if you're a particular government and want to stay in government and you want to, to do a whole host of wonderful things, maybe doing something which the public don't like or perceived by a lot of live groups to be a bad decision is, is not the way to go. If you want to stay in government and maybe help poverty in, in a particular country, if you want to, you know, if, you, if, if you're, for example, if you're a, a Labour government in the UK uh, and you're in power, and you think that the worst thing that could possibly happen is not climate change, but actually the Conservatives getting into power because they'll cut uh, welfare, then you're going to make a decision based on that, and you're going to weigh up those two options. So it's not always clear, particularly to scientists, why certain decisions are made, um, and whether they are based on scientific fact or whether there's other things at play. But there's a very complicated relationship between well, political practicality, political expediency, if a slightly crueler term, and uh, scientific advice. Absolutely. Um, I mean, particularly with the Germany case, I mean, Angela Merkel has a PhD in uh, quantum chemistry, and, you know, she's, she's very scientifically literate, and she would have understood the decisions that, that she was making. And it, it, it's, it's hard to know whether the decision that was made in Germany was actually made... It, it would be unreasonable to assume that it was made from a lack of understanding of science, but there might, may have been more at play. Thanks, Rob. I think we'll perhaps come back to this nuclear issue later in the podcast. But Catherine, you wrote about the decision regarding the sugar tax in the United Kingdom being an issue in which there was scientific advice on one hand, and then the political decisions followed a slightly curious path. It was a very interesting... So this unfolded while I was at Post, so it was very interesting to be there and be in the middle of it and sort of see it unfolding. So Public Health England were commissioned to produce a report on reducing sugar in diets. So Public Health England is supposed to be autonomous from government. It's sort of part of the Department of Health, but at the same time it didn't ought to be um, influenced by government. And they produced this report, they found that price increases, for example, by taxation on sugar-sweetened drinks um, and other high-sugar products does have an influence on whether people buy these and consume these things. The idea being then that if they don't buy them, they're not going to drink them, so it will help the impending obesity crisis. And diabetes and all such. Exactly, exactly. Initially, the government said that they were not going to impose a sugar tax. And in fact, they refused to publish this report produced by Public Health England. And that was a very controversial move um, because Public Health England is a public body doing research with public money. In the interests of open access, they should have had to have published the report. But the government suppressed it, or at least that's how it seemed. In fact, the report was then leaked. And after the report had been leaked, the government changed tack and decided they were in fact going to impose a tax on sugary drinks and then subsequently they did publish this report. So we know that it says what the leak said it had said. Um, so it was a, an interesting case of government suppressing science, which obviously never should happen, and then ignoring it. But once it became apparent that that's what was going on, backtracking and going with the science. So overall, they have 
gone with the science, but it took a somewhat shady and tortuous route to get there. Circuitous, being diplomatic. Exactly. <laughs> Do you think this kind of thing happens a lot? I genuinely don't know. I would like to hope it doesn't. I think we but, like but unless <laughs> these reports are leaked, unless the press gets wind of hmm. these reports existing, there's not going to be any pressure on government to do anything about it. So it was only because this was quite a high-profile story that um, national press picked up on it. It had um, celebrity backers like Jamie Oliver jumping up and down and saying that we need to do something about this. We can't know how many of these reports disappear. Well, actually, the, I don't know, was it because of this sugar tax, but recently the research bodies in the UK, at least, have been moving much more towards open access. So the research that comes out from not only public bodies, but universities and everyone else across the UK, if it's funded by one of the main research councils like you know, STFC or, or one of the, the Science Technology Facilities Council or one of, one of these, has to now be published open access within two years. Mm. And so the research directly from the researchers is being, is, being much more, is being made much more widely available, which hopefully might prevent something like this happening in the future. Well, I think it was the other way around. I think that um, it was because of this... Uh, emphasis on open access, on everything being published if it's been produced with public money, that there was so much pressure for this report to be published, um, which is why it was leaked and why it came out. Taking a slightly different view on this huge conundrum that, of course, science and politics are interacting in so many different ways, scientists also advise on, on natural disasters, on emergency situations. You're the two experts here, but I thought I might just uh, comment briefly that... Um, the president of Magdalen College, Professor David Clary, was, until a few years ago, the uh, scientific advisor to the Foreign Office and was one of the team involved in the advice around the Fukushima meltdown about whether um, UK nationals should be pulled out of Tokyo. The scientific advice was that because of the meteorological conditions, it was not necessary uh, to evacuate Tokyo, and that proved to be the correct advice. But Catherine, you found a scenario in which a group of scientists advising on a... <laughs> Uh, natural disaster uh, got in a bit of trouble. Yeah, so the, um, it was the earthquake in Italy, in L'Aquila, in 2009. There were some initial tremors, and a panel of scientists was consulted as to whether people needed to take particular precautions or evacuate. And based on the evidence they had from these initial tremors, they felt that no real action needed to be taken. And so that was the advice they gave, obviously with a pinch of salt. It's predictions but that advice was taken to heart no one did anything and then a significant earthquake followed people died in this earthquake and the scientists were held to be accountable for their deaths in fact some of the scientists were convicted of manslaughter uh, and uh, imprisoned uh, sent to jail for six years as a result of having given evidence as a result of having presented their, their best attempt based on the science that they had in front of them. Since acquitted, you found, but spent time in... Yeah, yeah, so, so the, the, the convictions were overturned. Um, but it's terrible for a scientist to have ever ended up in a position where they could be convicted based on their advice based on science. It, it sounds very uh, renaissance very very Galilean almost. <laughs> Rob, do you feel that there's not a, a good appreciation of what scientific evidence is? This idea that Catherine's been saying, it's the best guess, not irrefutable. Yeah, I think you need to be, you know, if you're going to 
if, if we are going to portray science as being our best guess, we need to be very clear about it. Science is not infallible. Science is a collection of findings of scientists across the world. And I think you will always find a scientist who will back your particular lobby group's findings or your particular lobby group's opinion. But what people need to look at is the whole picture and what's the consensus of the scientific community. So what are the majority of scientists saying? And that is our best guess at what is fact and that is our best guess at what is the right thing to do. So when, it, when, a scientific, when the scientific community advises on particular things like climate change or nuclear energy, if you look at the literature that the scientists have produced, what are the majority of them saying? And that, that is really what, what, what we should base our science policy on, I believe at least. Let's go into two of the themes that have come up thus far in a little more detail. So we'll discuss the variety of different ways, including post, about how uh, scientists and government communicate. But maybe first, let's talk about this, the nuclear power issue in Germany in a bit more detail. Rob, could you give us a short history reminder of the, the events surrounding this particular case? So Germany has, has always been a strong proponent, uh, together with France, of, of nuclear energy. And indeed, in 2010, uh, Germany announced plans to increase their stake in nuclear power. So to build more nuclear power plants and to try and move away from fossil fuels to meet its, its, its commitment to reducing fossil fuel emissions. But then Fukushima happened, and lobby groups that have previously been very strong came back to strength against nuclear power. And indeed, a large proportion of the German population suddenly flipped in, in what they what they wanted. They also wanted to move away from nuclear power because they were terrified of something like Fukushima happening in Europe. And with that, Germany flipped its decision to increase its stake in nuclear and instead decided to phase out all of its nuclear power plants by, I think it was 2022. This has since been extended to 2036. But the idea is that they would get rid of all their nuclear power plants and instead try and increase their stakehold in, in renewables, which seems like a wonderful decision until you realise that actually at the time, renewable technology wasn't implemented anywhere near as much as, as, as nuclear. And so what, what's ended up happening is that in the years since this switch from nuclear to, to renewables, what's happened is that nuclear power has dropped by about 10 to 12%. Fossil fuels has also dropped by about 10%. And the stake in renewables has gone up from 10% to 30%. So since this uh, decision was made, Germany have actually managed to reduce their stake in nuclear and increase their stake in renewables. Um, they've also reduced their, their uh, fossil fuel emissions. But one could argue that had they kept their nuclear power, they could have reduced their fossil fuel emissions even further. And because renewable energy, such as wind and solar, is very fluctuating, slight unreliable, they certainly, in their current plan, would have to keep a certain percentage of fossil fuel emissions to offset that unreliability. Yeah, I mean, when they decided to get rid of... Because I suppose what you have to remember is that the population is constantly increasing um, and people's lives are becoming ever more energy-consuming. People are consuming a lot more energy than they were 10 years ago, and you have to somehow account for that in your predictions of where energy production is going to come from in the next few years. And so Germany had originally planned to uh, deal with this by building more nuclear, but now that they've decided to get rid of nuclear, they've actually planned to build more coal power plants. Um, because things like renewables like wind and solar are intermittent sources, you always need to have a backup for when, when it's not sunny or when, when it's, it's not particularly windy. And the, the argument that a lot of scientists would make would be that actually if you have nuclear as your backup, 
what that means is that you, you you reduce your fossil fuel emissions even further, rather than by having extra coal power plants for when the when the uh, when the renewables aren't producing. But of course, with nuclear power, there is this public perception of the risk of enormous catastrophe. Um, but you've done a bit of looking into the data about you know number of deaths from nuclear versus other types of power, and you you came up with an event that I'm very ashamed that I hadn't heard of. I don't think Catherine had heard of it either, about the biggest renewable energy natural disaster that, that no one seems to know about. Yeah, I mean, the, the thing with nuclear is that nuclear is, is it's, it's always been an extremely polarizing topic because nuclear is a technology that is born out of war. It, it, it's born out of, you know, the, the bombs that were dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And so people have always had a fear associated with it. And in some ways, it's actually a, it's a fear which, which is, is valid, but is overstated. Um, so in particular, what you're referring to is that, you know, people look at uh, Chernobyl or Three Mile Island or uh, Fukushima as being like, some of the worst disasters from energy production to date. But if you look at the actual death toll from all of the nuclear accidents that have occurred, those, those, th- those three main ones at least, um, the, the death toll for all of those lies somewhere in the region of, 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 a, few, of a few thousand, maybe a few tens of thousand. Whereas the worst disaster from an energy-producing point of view was actually the uh, collapsing of the Bangchao Dam. Probably pronouncing that wrong, but the, the Bangchao Dam disaster. Uh, this was a hydroelectric dam in China, which remains to this date the worst technical disaster in history. It killed about 171,000 people, and it rendered another 11 million homeless. Um, but it's not anywhere near as well known as, as Fukushima or Chernobyl. And I suppose the reason for that is that you know, people talk about the long-term effects of, of radiation exposure. And indeed, the people who went into Chernobyl to try and clean it out after the, the meltdown, or the same for people who went to Fukushima, certainly there would be long-term effects for people who were close to the disaster. But the long-term effects uh, of the area surrounding are, are entirely different. The long-term effects that you would, you would get are nowhere near what people are predicting. It's, it's the, the total death toll is... is m- orders of magnitude less than from this dam disaster. And the amount of radiation that one would get from just kind of living next to a nuclear power station is also less than people might expect. Yeah, I mean, the the interesting thing is that if you, particularly technology like coal, coal is a really dirty technology. And what people don't realise is that you actually get a higher dose of radiation if you live within 50 miles of a coal power plant than you do from living within 50 miles of a nuclear power plant. Because the regulations on nuclear power are so strict that they can't emit radiation. They can't emit, emit anything above a, a completely uh, infinitesimal amount. Uh, whereas burning coal actually burns certain uh, compounds which release radiation. There's a really uh, pragmatic, you can call it, or uh, cynical way of looking at the, at the whole thing, which is uh, deaths per kilowatt hour. So this is... a. a a wonderful, um, I say wonderful, this was a, a piece of research that was done in the last decade where they looked at what is the actual cost, the cost to, to, to lives of producing energy. So if you look at all of the different methods of producing energy and you look at for every single kilowatt hour of energy that's generated, or in this case, every trillion kilowatt hours that are generated, how many people die as a result of that, whether that be coal mining deaths, whether that be nuclear power plant explosions like Fukushima and Chernobyl, whether that be people falling off the side of a wind turbine when they're constructing it, everything taken into account, about 90 people will die 
from nuclear accidents for every one trillion kilowatt hours of energy produced. But for the same amount of energy produced by coal power, 100,000 people die. That's five orders of magnitude. It's, it's <laughs> massive. Um, and actually, it turns out that if you stack all of the different ways of producing energy together, nuclear has the lowest amount of deaths per trillion kilowatt hours produced. So if you were to look at it from a scientific point of view, nuclear is the safest energy that we know today. Safer than solar, safer than wind, safer than hydroelectric. There is, of course, the nuclear waste issue, which we're not quite sure what to do with yet. So yeah, nuclear waste is definitely something which gets overlooked by a lot of pro-nuclear uh, proponents. And to be certain, nuclear waste is, is not, to be, not to be sniffed at. It's very radioactive, and in some cases, particularly for a lot of the reactors that were built in the 70s and 80s, that nuclear waste would be around for tens of thousands of years. But what people forget is that there are new generations of reactors coming online, in particular fourth generation reactors, which have the potential to reprocess some of that fuel. fuel. Uh, moreover, the, the more modern reactors don't produce anywhere near as much uh, nuclear waste, and the rate waste that they do produce actually deteriorates much quicker than the waste produced by the earlier reactors. If I might paraphrase or pretty, you're suggesting that there is a, a whole wealth of scientific evidence out there, a lot of it in favour of nuclear, uh, even regarding the nuclear waste issue, which should certainly be much more in the public eye, in the eye of our lawmakers, than perhaps we feel it, it currently is. Absolutely. I think you as well take that with a pinch of salt, that you know there is thousands of tonnes of nuclear waste around the world stored, waiting to be treated, and that, and that will be a problem that we will have to face. But I suppose it comes down to looking at the current situation that we have on our planet, which is you know, a warming climate and an increase in, in fossil fuel emissions year on year. Uh, and how do, you, how do you solve that? And one, one option is to go down the nuclear route, because the nuclear route cuts out fossil fuel emissions and puts the problem underground for the moment until we have a chance to deal with it. Let's now go to the second strand that I, I promised uh, 10 minutes ago. But we've heard a little from Catherine about how post works, but that's just one of the, the ways in which scientists and politicians in the UK, at least, uh, interact. Yes, that's true. I mean, it's the most pertinent to me because I spent time there, but there are a lot of different ways that scientists can get in touch with MPs and that MPs can take note of science. A lot of the government's science policy, or all of the government's science policy, is scrutinised, of course, um, and it's scrutinised by the Science and Technology Select Committee. So that's a group of, um, a group of MPs who have particular interests in science, either because their constituency contains a lot of scientists or has a, a, a big focus on research, um, or because they have a particular interest in science being a scientist, for example. And they will scrutinise the government's plans, decisions, actions on anything scientific-related. And they put out calls for evidence. So particularly, the recent hot topic has, of course, been Brexit and the effect that that will have on science and technology in the UK. Um, and the committee put out a call for evidence for anyone anyone with any thoughts, feelings, opinions, experiences about Brexit and science, um, how Brexit was going to affect them as a scientist, affect their research, um, and to, to effectively write them a letter and tell them that. Um, and then they compile reports on the topics that they've been discussing, which will, will criticise government as appropriate 
and we'll present evidence about science and technology directly to government from their own benches. There's also something called the Royal Society Pairing Scheme, which sounds like a jolly good idea from what I mean. <laughs> <laughs> So it sounds like a lovely scheme. Um, the idea of that is that um, what we really need is for MPs to talk to scientists and for scientists to have more understanding of what MPs do and how scientists can help MPs. Um, so the scheme simply pairs up a scientist with an MP um, and the scientist will spend some time in Parliament talking to the MP, explaining their research, understanding the workings of Parliament and how, as a scientist, they can have an impact, how they can make their voice heard. And in turn, an MP meets a scientist. As I was saying, MPs, most MPs are not scientists. Most people in Westminster are not scientists. MPs generally don't meet scientists. Um, so this scheme makes a deliberate attempt to overcome those barriers. It gives a human face to science. Um, it's very easy for science to be seen as this strange, bizarre system that people on the outside don't really understand and it's populated by experts who wear white coats and don't talk to anyone. And that's not what science is, but that's a common misconception. And by directing an MP to a specific scientist who, who is a human, who has uh, may have a family, who has a house, who has interests, who goes running after work, who likes tofu. I mean, it, it gives a, an immediacy and a, re a reality to science that perhaps people outside of science don't see. I think that's a really good point, actually, that most people don't realise that scientists are actually real people. <laughs> um, and that it's not just a massive computer crunching all the numbers. Like, it's... it's I think that's it's a really good idea as a scheme, and I, I, I'd hope that most MPs would sign up and, and, and kind of try and get an insight into what's driving a knowledge economy of the, the UK is aiming to be, you know? So, moving towards the end of our time, um, we've skirted around the issue of global warming, a vast area of our modern life in which scientific opinion is often coming in direct conflict with various political agendas. Maybe it is better that we've left that for another time. But there's a particular event that, Rob, you mentioned regarding the American Senate and global warming, which I found um, bizarre, confusing and entertaining all at once. Yeah, it, it, it was a particularly odd thing to happen. I mean, America has been one of the countries most fighting against or at least certainly the politicians in America have been most loath to take up this idea of global warming, at least in, in previous decades. One thing that the Senate did, um, I think it was in 2015, was that they had a vote on climate change. In fact, they had two votes on climate change in the same day. And a lot of uh, members of the Senate who were extremely opposed to climate change actually voted in favour of the bill stated as climate change is real and not a hoax. So firstly, that's an, an incredible way to... to the really funny way, actually, to, to, to phrase that, but real and not a hoax, as previously thought. Um, but on the same day, within 15 minutes of that vote, they voted on a second, uh, a second proposal, which was um, that climate change is real and man-made, or at least caused primarily by man. And to that, they voted against. And so within the same day, they voted that both climate change was real and not real, and that it was a, not a hoax, but not caused by humankind. When I, when I heard the first vote, I, w I was, uh, you know, thankfully they're accepting it. 
And the second vote, I stopped worrying about climate change altogether because the Senate told me it wasn't real, or, or at least not not caused by by human humankind. Um, so it's just a really bizarre thing. It's it's a it's it's an issue that I I don't feel is the right kind of issue to be voted on by non scientists. But it's it, it's yeah, it's it's just a bizarre situation. And finally, Catherine, um, if I'm a disgruntled constituent and there's some scientific issue in my constituency that is affecting me greatly, there's something for me as well, isn't there? Yes. Um, so your first port of call would, of course, be your MP. Uh, if your MP is not a scientist, your MP can get in touch with the Parliamentary Library Service. Um, and the Parliamentary Library Service is... I mean, so to be honest, their, their main role is to put together debate packs. So... Uh, if there's an upcoming debate, they will produce a lot of material, do the research for MPs, essentially. But if you have a particular burning scientific question that your MP doesn't know the answer to, uh, they can pass that question on to the library service, and the library service uh, will provide an answer to whatever your, your scientific question might be, um, whether it's something genuinely interesting and concerning, or whether it's something... Uh, for example, whether the badger cull is having an effect on hedgehog populations. Um, there is a, a devoted library researcher who will look that up for you and provide you with that answer that you need. Need being the operative word there. Because it would be a waste of public resources otherwise, wouldn't it? So. <laughs> Just imagine a scenario where you've got people like ringing in, uh, prank calling the, uh, the library service to ask uh, ridiculous scientific questions. Well, if you go through your MP, then they have to provide an answer so that's, actually really that's good. what it is it's, but it is a really good service <laughs> where is dark matter sent to my mp <laughs> having a really existential moment in the library service yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you very much both of you it's been a very enjoyable afternoon we've covered a huge range of different angles on this one topic and yet also perhaps barely begun to scratch the surface thank you very much for listening uh join us next week on in our spare time